The technology landscape is exploding, and it has never been a better time to be an entrepreneur. There's so much information out there, it can be hard to know where to start or who to trust. Your host, David Paul, is a seasoned venture capital investor that has founded his own investment firm, DWP Capital. He's a straight shooter that cuts through all the noise to bring you real and authentic conversations with investors, founders, and operators in the startup ecosystem. Join him each week to stay current with today's trends and get smarter about startups and tech investing. Hey, everybody, this is David Paul, the host of the Capital Stack podcast, where we talk to operators, founders, investors about all thing technology, operations, business building, all the above. Today, I'm proud to be interviewing Justin Gray, the founder and CEO of LeadMD, which was recently acquired by Shift Paradigm in 2021. Prior to the acquisition, LeadMD is considered to be the world's largest revenue consultancy, implementing over half of Marketo's user base. Marketo is a marketing tech platform, one of the biggest in the world. Justin Gray is a serial entrepreneur who has made a career of launching very successful companies and scaling them with successful exits totaling over $250 million of enterprise value. Justin is also a strong voice for pragmatic pragmatic entrepreneurship, modern marketing, and building intentional organizational culture. As a recognized speaker, Justin has been published over 500 times in industry publications and maintains a regular column in Inc., while also contributing to Entrepreneur, TechCrunch, and others. Justin, how are you doing today? Well, after that intro, I, I, I feel kind of insignificant over here. It's so, so long. I don't know if I can live up to that, but I'm feeling great. That's today. a trick. You know, you give all of the... Um, it's all, all downhill the, from here. Right. You give all of the kind of like the, the elevator speech kind of stuff, and then you're completely, you have nothing left to say. Exactly. Right? You're just, you're just you. here. What'd you drive here today? I drove the SUV. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Um, nothing interesting. Yeah. Nothing, nothing super cool. <laughs> Justin's got an incredible car collection. And um, what does it feel like to be kind of the real life Tony Stark? <laughs> I'll let you know. <laughs> You'll let me know later. Yeah, yeah. I've got I've got a guy crush on Justin. He usually dresses really nice. He's got nice cars. Super smart. Um, so good to have you here today. Um, so, what's it like, man? What's it like selling the company and kind of going on to the next chapter? Yeah, I mean that. Like owning a business, that answer changes every day, right? Like you're super high, super low, which I think is what I enjoy about business anyway. But it's an adventure, I think, is the the short answer to that question. That's great. That's great. So I want to dial it back a little bit um, to you know the origin story. Okay. Right. So did some digging online. You know, I was able to you know find some you know very uh, very awesome things about you. I'd love to kind of hear about, you know, it looks like your biggest foray into, into marketing looked to be like a billing tree, correct? Mm-hmm. So tell me a little bit about that and kind of what got you into marketing? What, what, made, what drew you to that domain? Well, I got into marketing initially because I was a journalism major. I went to the U of A, University of Arizona. Um, loved to write, loved, you know, I thought I was going to be a creative writer, maybe a, a, you know, a journalist of some sort anyway. And then I found out that they made no money as, as journalists, uh, you know, in the journalism field. So um, a buddy's dad of mine sat me down and said, hey, you can't go wrong with marketing. You like business. You like, you know, I guess would be called entrepreneurship in hindsight. But uh, you, you might as well go into marketing. You can, always, you, you can always use marketing. So I pivoted my major, graduated college, went into a bunch of different marketing jobs that I hated 
uh, each one, I think, more than the, the one previous, and then had a huge opportunity, which is really the opportunity of my lifetime, which uh, is the experience that I hope that I'm providing to other people as well. Um, but joined a company as employee number six, which, as you mentioned, was eventually called Billing Tree, not in the original days. Uh, so it was a startup when you came. Yeah, totally. To- total startup, uh, you know, very low revenue. Like I said, employee number six and had the opportunity to have, I think, everything that I hated about marketing taken off of the board at that point and, and really was just given the charge of help us grow to this company, help build a marketing and eventually sales team. So I took over both sales and marketing there, became their youngest VP, uh, built that organization out to at the time of my departure. And, and when I cashed in my equity, just north of $250 million in, in revenue, um, really from essentially dollar one. I think they had a couple hundred thousand dollars in, in revenue when I joined. Uh, but that journey was probably the most impactful thing for me as, as well as just that, hey, figure it out, get it done. Um, you know, what we now kind of glorify as, as startups, that was my first experience with it and, and fell in love immediately. So um, marketing is is definitely something I have a passion for, but I really, really am just laser focused and have a, a, a hyper passion for building businesses and, and growing early stage organizations. And who was the founder of Billing? Billing so there were three of them, um, which is interesting. Uh, but it was a guy named Jim Warman, John Mushegian, and Dan Willis were yes. the three founders. That's so, what I was about to say. Yeah. I was looking up. I, I, I figured it was Jim Warman. So that guy's got a pretty interesting background. Didn't he like sell timeshares or some shit before? Jim, like- Jim has sold everything from <laughs> carpet cleaning to timeshares to payment processing and and. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the, that that's a whole podcast for for a different. Day. I gotta get I gotta get Jim on this podcast. Jim <laughs> Jim actually put a couple mo- uh, some money in our deals. If if you can locate him, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's like all fucking dune buggies and stuff like exactly. in, in Nevada. He likes he likes to play with toys. Yeah, those those guys exited. Um, not the time that I did, but uh, geez, probably four or five years later. Uh, to a private equity firm, and and you know the revenues were crazy at that point. So, so what about writing? Really, really uh, attracts you. I mean, is that something you were naturally kind of um, gifted towards? Yeah. So I've, I've got two little kids now, right? And we were thinking about like, hey, what what did I do when I was kind of their age that I really enjoyed? And like, I used to write little mini stories, little novels, right? Like my brother would illustrate them, and I would I'd write all the copies. So. Just from a very young age, I, I love to write. I love being creative, and that was kind of my outlet. Okay, right on, right on. Uh, I, I don't like writing, and I'm not good at it, but I do it, right? And I actually learn to like it after doing it. It helps me think more clear. I, I totally think that, like, not even just writing, but, like, business writing should be a course that's taught to everyone. Like, how does effectively even send an email? So much just you know terrible stuff that passes for communication these days. But, like, if you've ever gotten an email from me, yeah, people can testify. It's a it's a mini novella in and of itself. Yeah, so I, I I do enjoy writing, and and we're going to talk about that because there's a lot of things that people should be taught in college. Mm-hmm. You know, from from the from the workforce perspective, and we're, we're definitely going to go into that. So, you work as vice president of marketing uh, and sales. Mm-hmm. You know, something you never really done before. Correct. Right. And so, what was what was that like? Just kind of did they just say you know you're a go getter? You had the you had the utspa to do it and just go figure it out or. Pretty much. And that's kind of what I look for in, in employees these days as well. Just like, are, are you willing to raise your hand and say, no one's doing this or it's being done poorly? Give me that responsibility. And that's kind of what I did there. And, and before I knew it, I, I had responsibility for both, which to your point, I had never run a sales team before. So um, huge learning by doing experience and uh, you know, really enjoyed that just as much as the marketing side. And that was a really big success for, um, for Arizona. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think we need more organizations that are, are organically grown here and, and, you know, grow up to do big things. And certainly from where that org started, it's, it's crazy to see where they've gone. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, and then tell me about your transition after, after Billingtree. Yeah. So, you know, like I said, uh, cashed out my equity in 2009, uh, thought I was going to take a glorious, you know, sabbatical and, and go live in Italy and actually flew a bunch of my friends over there and, you know, kind of had this start of a vacation, got a couple phone calls where, where folks were asking me, Hey, you know, I heard you're on the market. Do you want to, you know, would you come build out a marketing team or be our CMO and so on? So I had three phone calls that were almost identical in nature and said, no, I'm, I'm not really interested in being a W2 employee ever again, but uh, I would take this on as a consulting gig, which was, you know, a total accidental start to what would ultimately become lead MD. We had a lot of grand ideas about what we were going to do. So you mentioned Marketo earlier on, um, which in 2009 was a super budding space. Like no one knew what marketing automation was. And the first time I saw it, I was like, wow, what is this thing? Right? Like we were just batching and blasting emails prior to that. Um, so saw the opportunity in the, the technology space and the software and what was happening in marketing. So we thought we were going to white label the Marketo platform, which by the way, we actually did, which is a crazy kind of blip in, in Marketo's history for a one and a half, two year period. If you logged into Marketo, it said, which we won't get into the whole, the whole backstory around this, but LeadMD used to be called uh, mass impact M A A S marketing as a service. Um, so we white labeled like what is now crazy to think like owned by Adobe, the number one, enterprise marketing automation platform, but we white labeled that as our own brand and then would bundle services around it for implementation, ongoing uh, staff augmentation. And then Marketo was like, we don't want to do this anymore. Well, I mean, (laughs) which is something that they still haven't figured out even under Adobe, which is channel conflict, right? So like, again, super green space, but everyone that would approach us, oh yeah, we were on Marketo's website the other day. We fill a form, it's great. And it's like, all right, well, you just killed my acquisition channel there because they're going <laughs> right. to claim that lead. So not a lot of traction on the software side, hard to compete with, you know, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars in, in VC funding, but huge traction on, on the services side. So Marketo in 2009, they were still public or private. Private, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, they, they, when, when I first wrote that contract, it was literally on the back of a napkin at the Princess at a different show that was happening at the time. Their, their VP of BizDev, Amy Garino, and I, uh, started that relationship, and I think they maybe had forty employees. Okay, if that. Wow. All mm-hmm. right, and so LeadMD was not even yeah. formed yet. Well, it wasn't even a thing. Okay, so what was the what was the impetus of thinking about building services and bundling services around the platform and becoming an installer and, and really like the 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 conduit to how people go live? Yeah, well, I mean, what was interesting is obviously seeing marketing automation in those days, like it was totally new. Like no one knew, you probably couldn't even have Googled the term marketing automation. They were branding it and positioning it as totally different things. But as that started to evolve, like and even my own process getting set up on Marketo originally, I thought like, this can't be it. Like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I have no idea how you want me to use the software, trying to train my team, trying to get them up alive on it. So there was obviously a services need for, you know, someone to enable around that platform. Um, and the amount of growth that influxed into that space over the next two, three years, like that really propelled, you know, not only the lead, the need for lead MD, but lead MD forward just in the, all the traction that they were getting there. So, um, it was to answer your question squarely, like it was quite evident that there was a massive skills gap between what marketers were being asked to do and what they had done in the past. So did, so did Marketo essentially write the book on marketing automation? I would say so. I would say John Miller over there has done a massively successful job in just 
defining categories, you know, with marketing automation being, being that foray. Um, and so they, you know, them giving away their best practices became everyone's best practices. In fact, you could probably go log into instances and you would see the exact same structure that John put out in a white paper or an ebook built out in everyone's, uh, uh, Marketo instance, because people were starving for what does success look like? What does it even mean to be implemented? Which I think is the, the number one challenge that we had in the early days. You couldn't hire anyone that had implemented Marketo. Right. Like this was a solution that was 12 months old, right? Um, so just, you know, being a part of defining those services and and kind of learning on the fly, again, is like what what I find so enjoyable there. Yeah, so were you, since you were a, um, essentially a, cha- not a channel partner, but a... Um, yeah, a channel partner, yeah. uh, a value-added service mm-hmm. uh, for, for this software platform because they weren't in the services business. Correct. What kind of clients were they kicking you because essentially you were you were whim to their go-to-market and their customer acquisition i mean were they were they smbs mid-market enterprise which is so so crazy because people you know would still ask me eight nine years into the business like what are the verticals that you focus on it's like well geez we've done an implementation for almost every single type of organization on the planet that you can imagine i think we turned down two we turned well we shut one off so we used to be the services partner for like the national Republican convention who was just spamming the <laughs> hell out of everyone with the platform. We took the deal and then we cut them off. We're like, we see what you guys are doing. That's, yeah, that's we, like we, a fly. Yeah, we, know, we know what you're doing. And we turned down one porn provider, but yeah. everything else we've literally, you stay I mean, clean from nonprofit that. to tech, to healthcare, yeah. to finance, like we, across the gamut. If, if you've seen it, we've done it. Okay. And, um, but like, what about com- company size? Cause I would think that would matter more than vertical. Yeah. It, which is something that, kind of ran counter to our initial business plan. We were like marketing in a box for organizations, right? Which naturally kind of leads you into this SMB route, which have all, which became probably the number one red flag in our sales process. Like, do they not have a marketing department? And the CEO is trying to hire someone to come in and, and be that bolt-in uh, solution for them. Like that became the antithesis of who we wanted to sell to. But the early days, it was definitely SMBs. It was folks that saw the power in the software, but didn't have the team to implement or support it. Um, so a lot of those early clients were, were retainer clients, you know, that, that had no other marketing representation, which was great for getting started, but obviously not great from a, a budgetary perspective. So we migrated definitely into, you know, a mid market plus solution. Right. And so people that would on would need that solution. They thought, okay, we need marketing automation. Clearly buying software mm-hmm. is, is the answer for sure. that, but not actually knowing what the software did or having any kind, you know, an understanding of how it's going to impact their customers was all an educational process that you actually had to provide. Well, I, I would argue that, you know, buying technology is not the first step that people should take, but it is often the first step that they take. So especially when you've got a new solution like that, right? Like, no one knew they needed a scoring model until Marketo had a place to plug in your scoring model, right? Like what's your segmentation methodology? People were learning actually what their best practices should be by features within a piece of software, which is the first time I had ever seen that. Like you don't go buy QuickBooks and then decide that you need a general ledger, right? Like accounting has a set of tools and best practices and methodologies by which they do their job. Marketing did not have that. So the tool set actually started to drive what marketers did and what they focused on, which I thought was, was super interesting. But to your point, if you are you know, relying on a software to tell you what gaps you need to fill in or, or what you need to plug in there, like there's a lot more that's going to go into influencing the success 
of that campaign or that program or whatever you're, you're trying to launch. So that's actually why we started to expand and move away from just what would now be called revenue operations or, or the implementation of marketing technology and process is because all these dependencies that really drove success within a marketing campaign, we, we didn't have the, the proximity to touch really people, you know, Hey, implement the solution for us, help us be successful, but you can't do that unless you understand your buyer, unless you understand the market, unless you understand your messaging, positioning, your content strategy. So essentially we uncovered all these dependencies that we then started to form services around and and try to influence in a way that would drive campaign success. Any block of somebody being successful in Marketo, you would actually provide a service to alleviate that. So you were a perfect person to for marketo to i mean work that, that's really how we put together our services was either it, you just, you mentioned they don't ha, didn't have a professional services department they eventually rolled one out which dealt with technology implementation right but it was all those business processes and strategies and just the surrounding again dependencies that really people were lacking and needed a partner to help them formulate so that that's how that's how we designed our, our services. That's awesome. That's awesome. So you mentioned a lot, a little, uh, about how, um, marketing strategies were, um, often swayed by the tools that were coming to market. So after Marketo 2009, I got into venture capital in 2015 and in 2015, MarTech was, was crowded. Now sure. it's, it's, it's unbelievable. I mean, Crazy. I mean, if you look at the map, it looks like, you know, uh, I don't know, like an eight, like a HPV infection or something like, you know what I mean? Like, I don't, I don't even know what that, you know, it's just, it's incredible how many mm-hmm. logos there are. So please tell me a little bit about kind of how you've seen marketing technology evolve, you know, over the years, you know, from when you started to kind of seeing like what's working now and, and in between. Well, you know, to your point, everyone wanted to be a MarTech provider, you know, 2010 to 2015, right? You just saw a massive influx of of tech into that space, sales, you know, much, much in the same vein. From a landscape perspective, there's been a, a ton of consolidation and a, a ton of MA uh, in that space. But I think the big question that most, certainly executives, but really most teams are asking is like, how do we've made all these investments, people, process, technology, that that whole nine, but what what actually works, right? Like, can you show us an example of a utopian setup of best practices that are actually going to drive results. And that's where people are still struggling today because they've checked all the boxes. They've got a piece of software for everything that they need to do as a marketer, but they're still struggling to to ultimately demonstrate ROI and, and, and return on those spends. So I think what you're seeing right now is just a return to um, just obvious demand for for ROI and and simplicity ultimately. Right, because they're getting inundated with vendors, um, you know, people with a slightly better mousetrap. They yep. have a mousetrap. They don't even know if that mousetrap is working or not. Yep. So how, what's the solution there? I mean, the, the solution is unfortunately really unsexy, right? Like it's focusing on the absolute foundational points of of, of any marketing department. Like I learned these in school, although I didn't learn much in school that was applicable to what I do now. Like those those really key, you know, again, fundamental elements are, are are there. Like, do you understand your market? Do you understand your buyer? Do you understand how your solution solves their problems? And have you transit you know translated that into things that are going to engage and and help them? And I think for the most part, like that is not a technology solution. There's nothing that you can go buy that's going to answer those questions for you. Um, so again, I, th- I think there's just a, a massive need for a return to fundamentals. And I think you see that within like product led growth and a lot, like a lot of these trends that everyone wants to latch onto. 
Like that's just really great software that people naturally want to buy. And then they want to purchase more around it. Like they see things working and they want to add in additional components. So to do that, you really have to know your buyer. Yeah, no, absolutely. So you said something um, really interesting, which is kind of the fundamentals of, of marketing and, you know, stuff that you've learned in school. What about the stuff you haven't learned in school? And tell me a little bit about how you've um, thought about Six Bricks and bringing that to market mm-hmm. and, and that story, because that's fascinating. Well, you know, I mean, I, I don't know what the actual number is, like in a, from a 2022 standpoint, but like think about all the money that we're spending on MarTech and sales tech and just technology in general. And yet there's no degree that allows you to to get the knowledge to run those systems. There's no certification that is not vendor provided that really has a perverse incentive to ensure that more people earn that certification. Like right? the HubSpot. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Your your Adobe's and your, your HubSpots, they're going to put out a certification that says, yes, I know how to use this tool. But that's really not what you need to know as a marketer these days. That's one aspect of it. But you need to understand, again, all these dependent disciplines and, and skill sets that come together to form a really successful marketing motion. And and there's nothing that meets that that need within the marketplace right now. It's a huge opportunity. Mm-hmm. And so what, what do you mean by that is you mean like a curated content platform? Well, I mean, you could approach it through any lens, right? Like, but how, how does a, let's take the university system, for example, how do they keep up with all of that innovation? Like literally things change quarter over quarter. No, there's like, no way, right? Yeah, like they don't. The, the landscape's just evolving so rapidly that, they know that they can't do it. They largely have not developed a model to go interface with subject matter experts and business owners that come in. Like the whole adjunct professor thing really does not um, go as in-depth as you need to there. And so, the, yes, they are reliant on some sort of third party to come up with curriculum and and learnings and structure those in a, in a manner that says, for your role, here's everything that you need to understand in order to be successful there. And, and again, that that's a massive gap there. And I think that's where we've seen um, the opportunity to fill that gap in some ways, but quite frankly, the, the it's massive. The charge is just humongous. When you think about everything that you have to put together, curate over time and, and, and just keep relevant from a content perspective, we've kind of created a beast in that regard. Yeah. So <clears throat> if I was, um, you know, if I, I'm trying to think back to my marketing classes back in college, and it's pretty hard because I was high most of the time, but I, none of it seems relevant to what is being taught today. And um, to your point, I don't think that anybody has got the ability to to like bring in people from the outside. I don't mm-hmm. think anyone's really incentivized to, right. to educate students about today's workforce. And if you have a degree in marketing, and all of a sudden you get you know thrown into a uh, into a job, you know, an entry level job, it really does not give you any leg up. If, then if you just walked in the street, that's why I told my wife, I was like, I could care less if my girls go to college. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? I really could care I, less. I think most people that, that have been, you know, at the center of an evolving discipline or, or, or area feel that way these days because everyone is learning on the job. Mm-hmm. And, and through that, they're getting a very myopic view of revenue operations of marketing, of demand gen, of account-based marketing, like what, fill in the discipline, right? Like you get the perspective of that one organization and how they did it. And I think only your curious folks out there are, are exploring and saying, I want to know how, you know, other organizations use this. I want to uh, consume other people's best practices beyond just the constraints of that particular job. Like that curious learner is, is really, I think where we see your standout starting to evolve. So unfortunately there's no place, you know, singular location you can go to, to map out that, that career roadmap. 
They should literally like make college half as expensive and then make corporations pay the college the other half and literally just do half and half. So, and there's some interesting models that are starting to evolve there. There's a group called Highway Education, which is a, a previous founder from an organization called Capost. His name's Tony Murdoch, who's putting some of that onus back on on the employer, right? Like you can sponsor uh, a number of students to go through their learning paths. They're you know not guaranteed placement, but they will be a candidate that they can assess after they graduate. And if they are hired, then that tuition will be reimbursed by 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 the hiring organization. So you know same type of model as your uh, coding boot camps and things like that these days. So I think people are trying to solve that um, uh, in a number of different manners, but it always comes back down to the content. Like we've we've truly created a monster in terms of all the things to know, and so um, no, no one's no one's you know built that that magic bread box yet. Okay. So you built out this, this repository of content and lessons and tests and case studies. So how do you organize it and how do you make it applicable to any vertical and industry? Yeah. I mean, we, we organized it around role. So, you know, if you want to be a marketing operations manager and your stack has Marketo in it, we, we have courses for you in that regard. Right. But it's still, there's only so broad that we can go as, as really an agency trying to develop these, these different learning paths. So, um, I think you have to make it role-based to make things digestible and, and and get people relevant learnings to the role that they're playing within an organization. But even, you know, I mean, th- those roles change all the, all the time, right? Like account-based marketing wasn't really a thing five years ago. And nowadays there are a ton of marketers with account-based marketing specialists, marketing coordinators, so on and so forth. So it, it's, it's just difficult to keep up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, no, I could totally, I could totally, uh, I could totally see that. So marketing professionals, um, definitely don't have any kind of standardization nope. with titles with, I mean, and, and, and that speaks to a lot of the challenges within hiring, right? Like you can look really great on a resume or for the four weeks where you're going through kind of the, the evaluation, the hiring process and so on, but not until you get plugged into that role and really start to execute on a day-to-day basis, do things start to really become clear. So um, the, you know, we can speak all day about the, like the talent migration that's going on and so on. But a lot of that is at the root of that pain. Like someone was in a role that they weren't really fit for. They never got the enablement around. And so they're going to go try their hand over here. So, um, a lot, lot of problems to solve when it comes to, 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 you know, the discipline of marketing. And what about, um, you know, business to consumer versus B2B? Yep. Just Same you know, thing. M- more, more, you know, different lenses to apply there. B2B, B2B to C, right? Like all these different go to market motions start to specialize how you use those tools, how you speak to your buyer. Um, so, you know, getting someone that is really well-rounded from, from a consultancy and an, an agency standpoint is you know probably our, our greatest challenge out there because our each one of our clients wants to think that they're our only client that we know their business model in and out we work with someone that looks exactly like them and that's never the case you've got to focus on the commonalities and the, and the fundamentals there okay and so what is um so is six bricks still in in build mode or are you guys are you guys launched yeah i mean we're launched from a product perspective we use it for the the roles and and the softwares that that we've built content out around but it's kind of in a um I would say like an incubation stage, like we'll see what happens, you know, in, in, in another life of mine and so on. But we, we, we've got course materials and learnings for very specific use cases. I think the, the charges, how, how do you go about expanding those so that you can accommodate a, a larger slice of the market? That's, that's the question that we ponder. Okay. And we is, do you have a co-founder or is it? I, I mean, I'm the only one that, that still exists. So it's interesting. So we went through the acquisition rate right, from, 
from being lead MD now into this larger firm. And that's definitely not on their strategic roadmap. I retained ownership of, of six bricks and we still sell six bricks uh, with every uh, Marketo implementation that we perform. So, you know, it's there, it's working how we go about building out that, that course curriculum and, and future materials, I think will be um, uh, another life for me. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about you get, you get more, um, you get um, lead MD to scale. Mm-hmm. For the operation, I mean, it's it's pumping out tons of implementations. You're servicing clients all around the world. How many employees did you have? We had just short of sixty at the time of acquisition, yeah. fifty eight, and it was extremely profitable. We we we, we I, I think we had a, a business model down that was running smoothly, is what I would say. Now, when you were building your business, was there another business that you looked to as an archetype that you wanted to kind of like um, you know resemble? Yeah, I mean, uh, probably bad to give a shout out to a competitor, but I'll do it anyway. Um, I love what the folks at, at Hero Digital are doing. I think they're a great shop, both from a talent management perspective to a service offerings perspective. And as you know, we we were in the midst of our journey, kind of moving away from revenue operations and being known as a Marketo implementer or a marketing automation implementer um, into more of a a full service provider. And and a lot of what um, I enjoyed about their approach is, you know, they definitely. Are, are aiming higher in terms of their, their their service offerings. But where I feel the gap in, in a lot of those providers, and we can point to a lot of them, right? Like Sales Benchmark Index is another great organization out there. I think they do a great job on the sales side. But where a lot of those orgs fall down is exactly what we were trying to do, which is bridge strategy and really great innovative outputs, go-to-market outputs and so on, with the tactical operation side of the house, right? Like I always give the example buyer personas. Everyone knows they need buyer personas. Everyone's put a ton of money into into creating them. But the ultimate deliverable is never meant to be operationalized. You could not give that to a, a head of revenue operations and say, all right, segment our database in line with these. It's like, oh, this person's an, uh, an aggressive thinker and they, they make uh, uh, quick, uh, rash decisions and so on. Like, where do I find the data point around rash decisions? Like, that doesn't exist in, in a database, right? And so you've got you've to link those two elements together, which I think is is where a lot of that opportunity lies. A lot of folks are doing great, strategic, innovative marketing consulting. A lot of folks are doing platform-specific implementation and support. But connecting those two is is exactly what we're trying to do at, at Ship Paradigm. And that business, I'm sure competitive because it's a service business, but not nearly as competitive as, say, digital advertising. Totally. Right. D- digital media and so on is, is really... There, there are big commoditized elements of that, certainly. Right. So you can still out-service people. You can still have a big brand. You have more pricing power and margin power because you're doing things that are a little bit more complex. Correct. And I, I think, you know, we've already started, like digital media is something that we haven't played a, 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 into a ton in the past, but we've already started going into the strategy side of the house there. And I think how we go about accommodating the the, ta- the day-to-day tactics will be an interesting uh, discussion certainly from an M&A perspective going forward. Yeah, marketing is really a black box, especially for CEOs not marketing focused. I mean, I'm, <clears throat> I'm not a CEO and um, I've only played one on TV occasionally and I've had to jump in, in some portfolio companies. And I remember uh, with one portfolio company that we're you know, both familiar with, I had to jump in and I had to understand kind of what was going on with marketing. And I was literally like, okay, well, we need a marketing person, but like I needed like a strategy person. I needed somebody sure. to actually 
do the the copy and the mm-hmm. creative, and then I needed somebody to actually like run the demand gen and like, the Google ads. And those are three different people. Yeah, the fallacy I think you know within a lot of orgs is they're looking for that unicorn that can do all of those things you know fairly well. And although those people do exist out there, it's not a strategy. Uh, it's not a hiring strategy, right? So marketing is a lot more complex and nuanced than than most people give it credit for. I will say that one of the biggest uh, drivers of success that we see in, in marketing teams is having leadership that either understands marketing or understands it enough to trust someone that is an expert in that area. Um, you often see like this weird dichotomy between sales and marketing, like sales driven orgs don't really believe in marketing. Marketing driven orgs don't really believe in sales. Um, so it's interesting to see kind of that, that battle that has, uh, you know, emerged as quote unquote sales and marketing alignment um, but it's like, the, a, it's like the vampires and werewolves in Twilight, totally. right? <laughs> Just like that. So from a from a CEO standpoint, like it, it, unless you have someone at the leadership level that really believes in marketing, understands the nuances, that it really is an influence discipline rather than you know a straight line ROI discipline, uh, it's difficult to give marketing the latitude they need to succeed. I think if you don't have that key ingredient. So how does a small org? Right. I mean, if you don't have a marketing CEO, how do you how do you have any marketing in your company at all? You can't have a unicorn. I mean, how does how does one leverage themselves? Yeah, I I don't know the answer to that question. I get asked a lot like, hey, I'm considering this job or this role and it doesn't feel like leadership is really bought into marketing. And my only advice is, well, walk away from that. Right. That that opportunity. Right. You need you can't be fighting that battle every single day of does marketing have value? Like, I feel like it's one of those things where you have to commit, you have to outline some KPIs that are going to indicate success, and, and then you have to give it time in order to be effective. Nice, nice. So you built out your organization to scale. You were wildly, you know, um, successful and, you know, had some great margins. Like, how do, you, how do you contribute your success to that? You know, because you sold time. Yeah, we're, we're, we're selling you know, our, our biggest ingredient in sales is trust and we're selling an intangible, right? Like we're selling people's brains. Um, the absolute key driver to anything lead MD success and, and going forward ship paradigm is finding people. Like you mentioned earlier, like how'd you get into those roles and so on? Like I raised my hand and said, Hey, I'm, I'm willing to do this, right? Like that's the key ingredient that I look for within anyone. And I think the, the reciprocity there is you have to give them the, the, the trust and the ownership when someone has raised their hand, right? So hiring and, and just filling your organization with folks that that are curious, naturally curious, they're go-getters, they're willing to take that responsibility, and then empowering them to do so I, is is absolutely the reason that, that LeadMD was was where, where it was at. God, I admire guys like you, man. You have the staying power to be like openly empathetic day after day with employees. It's just difficult, right? I mean, yeah. the average age in our organization was 28 at the time we were acquired, so... Um, it's a different audience, right? Like I'm, I'm now older. I was that age uh, or near that age when I started the business, but it, it's very evident that, you know, there, there are different personalities and needs and traits within those roles that you have to bend and flex and, and to your point, be empathetic to. Um, so a people-based business is just that it is managing all these different disparate personalities and needs and wants and so on and, and trying to centralize them, which I think is probably the, the most important key around what is that mutual success? What, 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 are you, what are we looking for you to drive for us? And what in return will you get from that equation? And I think you have to spell that out for every single one of your employees. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, having a, an, an agency model, 
you know, you're balancing the supply and the demand. And I, sure. I had actually Zach Ferris on the show um, a couple episodes yeah. ago, and we talked about how difficult it was because, you know, you go to capacity, you try to fill up your pipe. Eventually, your quality goes down because, it, but or else if you don't do that, then your pipe goes empty, and then you've got nothing. Yep. So, like, how do you, how did you think about that and, and managing and forecasting yourself? I mean, obviously, you had to eat your own dog food. Yeah. So I, I do think in the agency world, there always will be a love-hate relationship between sales and delivery. Like, that, it's just going to be the case. Like, if you've got a symbiotic relationship between those two orgs, you're not probably performing at the level that you need to, right? Like, so, yes, we we sell ahead of capability in, in some ways, meaning that we haven't always done what we are selling or, or components of what we're selling, but you have to set the expectation within the delivery org that, that you know that you have a, a model to accommodate that right like we would stand up particular teams and and really one individual leader that would be in charge of doing things for the first time and then ensuring that we never do that thing for a first time ever again right like it's your job to to hero deliver that engagement you've got a breadth of of, of skill sets and and probably more importantly willingness to go in and and deliver something to success the first time, but then ensure that that knowledge is handed off and documented and passed, and to a certain extent productized for the rest of the team. There are just folks that love and thrive being in that type of environment, and there are folks that want to come in and know exactly I'm going to be doing roughly what I what I did the day prior. So getting back to talent, like I think that's a key uh, <clears throat> aspect that you. <clears throat> Sorry. Um, a key aspect that you have to identify with employees, right? Like, where do they feel most comfortable? What do they want to be doing on a daily basis? And then tailoring that work to those strengths and weaknesses. Do you believe in tools like the predictive index? And I, I, I think they're just that. I think they're tools. Like, we went through, I think, probably four or five different behavioral models. We've done DISC. We've done predictive index. We've done, you know, Myers-Briggs. Like, the, the whole gamut of things, Right. They're, they're good signals. And I think going into a conversation, you like I just hired a, a new head of marketing uh, internally for us, and I, I had her go through uh, a Myers. Actually, is Myers Briggs? I think so. Person, yeah, per, right, personality so. test. I yeah. don't know. So uh, had her take that test. You know, not that it was a signal for am I going to hire you or not, or are you a right fit for this role, but it, it, it's an aspect that you look at. And I think you, you, you know, they're important uh, dimensions to consider. Sure. So. What made you want to sell? What what shift paradigm that came to you? The private equity back. Tell us a little bit about you know Parent Co. and what got you interested and in, and in, um, making a move. Yeah, so you know we we as a business had said we've got this goal in mind, right? Like it was a revenue a revenue and an EBITDA goal, and at that so everyone in the organization had ownership within LeadMD, and we had always advertised, hey, here's kind of our our point where we think an M&A transaction would allow us to scale more quickly than organic growth. And so once we get to that point, we're going to have that conversation. So we, we hit that milestone and said, you know, that's the next item on our, our, our radar, our roadmap. I don't know when that's going to be, but we're now open to that possibility. So I engaged with a couple of folks that had run a transaction pretty much in, in exactly in the same space. Um, you know, knew them, had a great referral, started to form that relationship and started strategically shopping the business to organizations that would fit uh, the, the criteria that we had outlined. The number, the most important of which was not just being folded in to someone else's engine. Platform. Right? Yeah, we, we wanted to combine, you know, 
one plus one equals five and and find someone that had good characteristics where we were weak, which where we were weak was on the operations side of the house, right? We ran a two and a half person operations department. I'm talking back office, accounting, HR, all of that great stuff, right? Like, and a couple of us were just running around like crazy trying to fill in those gaps. Well, we had already gone beyond 50 employees, which is always kind of my my, my benchmark of, hey, we're going to need some better support or we're not going to be able to retain this talent and, and really foster it in the way that we want to. So that was a big aspect of it. I think enterprise logos was another big aspect of it. How do we leapfrog into, and we were servicing a lot of enterprise orgs, but largely divisionally, right? Like we'd work with one business unit or, or a division of the business. So is there the potential for us to bring our services into large brands where we could get you know more share of wallet? So those were really kind of the the main factors that we had looked at. And when we looked at Trendline, which ultimately was the the business that acquired us, it was quite clear they needed to go through a transformation as well. Like we we had certain areas that we needed to to evolve or change in relation to, but so did they. So I didn't feel like it was, and and this is actually kind of an interesting sore subject, I think internally for, for some folks is like, was this an acquisition? Was it a merger? And if it was an acquisition, who acquired who? And to me, that's actually the definition of success in, in, right. in relation to this transaction, because I didn't just want to be a business unit or, or a division bolted in that, you know, focused on rev ops or, or digital marketing. I wanted to form a, a completely different business. And, and that's exactly what we're in the midst of doing. Oh, that's awesome. That's a great story. And so when you when you when you sold and now you're sitting as the chief revenue officer, uh, chief commercial officer. Chief commercial officer. I'd argue they are one and the same. <laughs> okay, and that's and that's all things marketing and sales. Correct. And what, what's what's Parent Co. sell that you know that LeadMD was not. So I mean they they have a, so it's interesting when you think about even the thesis for for the merger, which from it is a private equity backed organization. So what they were looking to do is get 100 percent coverage across all the dominant marketing clouds, of which there are really two. There is Adobe and there's Salesforce Marketing Cloud. So they had a massive footprint uh, under SFMC. Um, they also had a a much more robust what I would call campaign engine, like just day to day campaigning. Uh, and then largely on the B2C side, which we were predominantly B2B. So a lot of those, you know, again, like where one is strong in B2B, we're doing some B2C work. They're, they're kind of the reciprocal of that. So um, it definitely kind of fit the, all those boxes in terms of like we can come together in a complementary way and and cover a much larger spread of ground. Awesome. So what's what's next, Justin? What are we doing? Yeah, I, I think, you know, the... What's next is is what we talked about in terms of the industry and what they're really looking for. Like there there is an absolute lack of appetite around more, and there's a huge predominant ap- appetite around better. How do we stop spending so much on technology? How do we stop going through all these iterations? Like people have jumped from HubSpot to Marketo to Salesforce to to Braze, like all, all of the, these different technologies, and that's not changing the result. I think what changes the result is what we call informed delivery. How do I reset? And this happened as a result of COVID in a big way, like clients coming to us and saying, we need to change our go-to-market approach, but we need to get that in market in a matter of days and months, not a matter of years, right? And so people needed, 
uh, number one, the planning cycle shortened dramatically. So it wasn't like, hey, set a new heading for us in 2023. It was, we need to figure out a way to keep acquiring customers now that everyone is digital. We need to figure out how we retain our customers. How do we become a mission critical solution for that user base? And so recasting that go-to-market strategy, but doing so in a way that can see the light of day, again, days and months rather than years, um, I think is is what organizations are are struggling and, and have a huge appetite for these days. They want to see things that aren't just glossy. It's not that thud factor of here's a 5,000 page PowerPoint presentation and there's, there's great ideas, but they're never going to see the light of day. They want to see that translated down into tech and data, into process, into how they staff and organize their teams and ultimately how they engage their buyers. So to pull that that concept all the way through and do so in a highly innovative cycle that, that again, moves in terms of quarters, not years, um, is, is where I see the opportunity within the market. So do you think that's, is that a blend of software and service? Totally. Yeah, it has totally. to be. Yep. Right. Well, it, it's also a blend of how we house data, which I think is is probably the most important uh, aspect that was overlooked when we implemented all this technology. We created all these silos of different information and marketing had their view of the world Customer success had their view, sales had their view, operations, platform, like everyone was kind of operating on their own data set. The biggest trend in, in, in the market today is absolutely centralizing all of that data. And it's driven by COVID, right? Because if we're if we only have digital signals available to understand and engage a buyer, we better bring all of those together so we, we don't fall flat on our face. And that's what a lot of organizations did out of the gate, right? You saw that with like these really benign. Um, how are you doing during the pandemic, right? Like early stage, everyone sent like a, an empathy first message. And it was almost like a playbook that they were following and buyers were kind of rolling their eyes saying, if you don't know what my business is and how this pandemic is affecting me, then I don't know why I'm your client in the first place. Mm-hmm. And so like the, the only way that you can really uh, uh, understand that buyer is to bring in number one, capture great data about who it is that you're serving, but then to centralize all of that so that you're learning over time and you're taking in all of those different signals or, or, or um, behaviors that someone's exhibiting. And so, you know, unfortunately, we're wrapping that up in, in terms of technology. Again, it's called CDP or, or customer data platforms. But the concept behind it, I think we have to fundamentally run differently than we have in the past. We can't just buy that and then kind of have these little skunk works projects to combine data from areas of the organization. It has to be a top-down approach that says we have to fundamentally centralize data around our prospects and buyers. And we have to curate that as probably the largest asset within our organization. So is that a new space, customer data platforms? Totally. Probably, uh, probably the hottest space in Mar- And I wouldn't even say MarTech, in technology as a whole right now. If you look at Adobe, Salesforce, they've all rolled out a CDP offering. It's all of their number one priority in terms of uh, market penetration and sales. And I think your service provider's role within that is is hypercritical in not falling into the missteps that we've done in the past. All right, so let's unpack um, CDPs. Sure. Right. So <clears throat> for the layman, right, who understands that Marketo focuses on you know email automations of email and some other functions and and, yep. and um, but you know basically serves as quote unquote a platform. A platform meaning a company that you can integrate to that other companies will like integrate with and and partner with to create a full offering. Where does CDP sit within that in that Martech stack? At at the highest level, at the most centralized level, right? Like so Marketo, yes, is an engagement tool. You mentioned email and all the different channels that it supports. 
but it's fundamentally a database, right? And that's kind of the, the funny question that we used to get in the early days, which is like, all right, when can I expect the new leads? And it's like, no, this is a, a software solution that you import your leads into <laughs> and then you nurture them to the buying process. Yeah, so you'll get leads. Yeah, right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the phone books are leads. Anytime you import yeah. them is the answer. Um, so you have to, so that became marketing's database, right? Just like CRM was largely sales da- sales's database. Although I would argue that, um, a CDP is the database of the organization, right? And not only that database, but the ability to uh, capture and intelligently catalog signals coming from buyers that you also need to identify in different buying modes. So we mentioned like weird um, industries that we've serviced across the years. So we actually did a large CDP implementation for the the uh, government's provider of choice around licensing. You're talking about parks and recreation, fishing, right? Like all these different licenses that you need to acquire as an individual. You you also operate in different modes, right? Like I am a consumer. Maybe I uh, need to buy a license to take my kids fishing on the weekend. Then I also work as an at an organization that provides those licenses as part of a, a rafting trip package or whatever. I'm coming up with random stuff on the top of my head. But um, the point being, I operate in these different modes. I'm just in the employee. I'm just in the consumer. Um, I'm also just in the husband and just in the buyer of X you know, uh, products and so on. How do I understand that that Justin is all the same person? In, in the past, through marketing and sen- sales-centric uh, uh, databases, I would be different people within those different profiles, right? Like CDP is the translation layer that allows me to understand what that singular identity is and then weaves in all of those different motions. What I'm making as a consumer, as a business person, all the different roles that I'm playing, right? It allows me to say you have one centralized profile that we are then building intelligence around and then we can action around that that profile, right? So maybe once I've curated that information, I can push it out to a marketing platform to engage that buyer. Maybe I can send it back, you know, I can, I can perform analytics on it. I can send it over to customer success. So the next time I call up, they've got all that information in front of me. The point being, it has to be centralized from all those disparate systems, but also just all those different modes of operation that, that, that I'm performing as a human, as an individual. So CDP, I, I, and, you know, CDP represents that organizational mentality for me. Awesome. And so who's doing CDP well right now? Uh, from a product standpoint? Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, there are, so like we talked about all this, you know, B2B, B2C, like those use cases are complex. So I think you have to look through the lens of what go-to-market motion you're trying to support. I like Telium. Um, I do like Adobe's AEP offering, which is, you know, and I'm like, there's nuances to CDP. So anyone listening to this is going to say like, you know, hey, is that really a CDP? But I'm talking about the engagement layer that kind of sits above CDP that allows me to identify and translate those actions into something that can be housed in a database, whatever that backend database is. So I think those are kind of my two providers of choice right now. Um, Segment does a lot for the the kind of SMB mid market. I think they do that interestingly well. Um, but the Segment IO. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but there's just a ton of emerging providers in that space as well, which are adding. Uh, machine learning and AI as layers in there as well. So you definitely have not seen, you know, the the far and away best in class uh, provider at this point. But I think there's some folks making uh, pretty good inroads there. Awesome, awesome. 
So tell me a little bit, Justin, on uh, uh, Gray Matter Ventures. Yeah, Gray Matter Ventures is just my uh, my uh, half-ass attempt to <laughs> to do angel funding. Uh, really, you know, uh, hopefully with a local focus, but it's kind of expanded beyond that. Um, it's my foray into into being able to to fund and uh, you know provide some horsepower to organizations that I believe in. Yeah. So are you a, a, a local Phoenix, um, you know, uh, evangelist? I am. I think Phoenix is in an interesting spot where it needs to be a bit more self-aware just in terms of how mature the, the ecosystem is. Um, but I'm, I'm a big fan. I'm, I'm born and raised here. So I'd love to see, uh, you know, us build a, a technology and startup ecosystem that would rival an Austin or a Seattle or a Denver, right? I just, I, I think we've got some a ways to go, and I don't think we necessarily acknowledge how far we have to go. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, for me, I just, you know, I just don't care. I'll just go to Austin and find it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, when, I mean, Southwest is cheap. When, you know, when, when I started, I thought I'm only going to invest in Arizona-based businesses, and that that thesis kind of uh, yeah. went out the door pretty quickly. There's like three or four archetypes that replay themselves, like you know, characters that like respawn every couple of years, yep. right? And yep. you know, and it's and and companies that kind of respawn every couple of years about supporting the Phoenix ecosystem. I try to make this show not about the Phoenix ecosystem. That's more of kind of like a mead shtick, right? right but, right. Um, you know, it is, it is great that you're putting uh, some capital out there. So what are some of the deals that you've done? Um, so I think there's an, an interesting – so I, I like to focus on kind of the evolution of, uh, of MarTech. So uh, I'm in a uh, very early stage company that's doing ABM for marketing automation or marketing automation for ABM, say that in, in the opposite manner, um, product-led growth. You know, marketing automation. I'm really interested in that as well. Um, it's the the ABM foray is the um, the old CEO and kind of his right hand that used to be invisible. Okay. So they're um, they're, they're they're taking a new stab at it. Um, I also invested in a um, marketing operations community. It's called Mo Pros. Um, to to our earlier conversation around education and just kind of learning and you know how do we. Uh, fill some of these gaps that exist out there. They're trying to do that from from you know multiple different angles. So just kind of all over the board, really. Nice. Invest in what you know. That mm-hmm. you can't go really wrong there. At least you know you're not going to get snowed. Whenever I have someone, <laughs> you know, hopefully not. Yeah, telling me like, how great their technology is, I'm like, pass. You know, I, I'm not a technologist. I can't validate it. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's a little bit it's a little bit hard. You know, customers really you know speak the most right, and how how they use the product, how they like the product, and having that expertise in Martech is is probably extremely valuable for your uh, the founders you invest in. They're lucky to have you. So now that we're kind of running towards the end of the show, some rapid fire can oh rapid fire yeah rapid fire canned uh, canned questions. What is your favorite book? My favorite book is one that we try to make every new employee read as well. It's called Getting Naked. Have you ever heard of that? No, pa- Patrick Lee and Coney. I try to get um, I try to get my mom my my mom I try to get my wife to, <laughs> I try to get my wife to read that. Uh, we won't even touch yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> <one>. um, <laughs> But basically, when I read that book, I was like, dude, that is the agency that I want to be running and, and building. So we, we try to give that context. He wrote the dysfunctional teams. Yes, right? correct. The 12 yep, yep. You know, traits. Of, yeah, that's mm-hmm. a great book. Highly functional teams. Yeah, highly yeah. functional teams. Right, right, right. Dysfunctions, <laughs> right. Uh, so, all right. So uh, best piece of business advice you ever had? Uh, say yes. I think uh, that's, you know, there's plenty of people out there that will tell you to say no, right? Like your time is your only asset. And, and that's totally valid. But I've had more opportunities by just saying yes to stuff that I absolutely did not want to do 
or go to or take that meeting or whatever. So I tried to say yes whenever possible. Yeah. Hence the poker tournament. Exactly. <laughs> right? Yeah. David exactly. just talked me into a poker tournament. I, I don't want to do, do it. I do not play yes. poker. You'll never know what comes out of it. Um, no, absolutely. Uh, putting yourself in uncomfortable positions usually leads to some kind of growth, at least in my Agreed. experience. Agreed. Uh, okay. And any type of, uh, publicly traded companies, big private companies that you really, really like that are following you buying stocks. Um, I buy very few stocks to be real honest with you. Like I'm, I'm so on the investing side, I'm part of a, um, a group called stage two capital. Yeah. Talk that about that. Only, that's a, that's um, a big thing. Yeah. They, they, they only, uh, invite LPs who are operators, practitioners within the sales and marketing space. So you get kind of an interesting diligence process that, that emerges from that because you've got folks that have either built a company in that space or have really deep knowledge of, of, of that business area. Um, so that's where I do a lot of my, like, I consider that like my high risk investing and so on, because it's all uh, venture capital on the stock side. Like I'll throw some money at, like, I think I've got Moderna right now. I had Disney for a while, just like stuff that you see, right. like, Oh, you know, COVID's going to come back and this seems like a good opportunity. Right. But I, I definitely am not a, an equity trader. Gotcha. Gotcha. Me either. It's too scary, especially now. I just don't know enough about it or, or have the time to, exactly. to learn really. Exactly. All right, Justin, thank you so much. Again, that is I am David Paul with the Capital Stack interviewing Justin Gray, formerly of Lead MD, now with Shift Paradigm. We talk about all things startups, investing, technology, and business operations. Uh, thank you so much for coming on, Justin. Hopefully, have you again soon. And uh, if you like the show, please subscribe, tell your friends, and uh, we'll see you next week. Thanks. Bye bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Capital Stack Podcast. Make sure to share this with someone you know that can benefit from this content. Remember to support this show by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. David Paul is the founder and general partner at DWP Capital. All opinions expressed by David and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of DWP Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. David and guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed on this podcast.